I'm not an economic professor. If you get $800 a week unemployment benefits and you live with a partner who also is getting $800 a week unemployment benefits, $1,600 a week, Laura, $83,000 a year for that household in unemployment benefits. The median income in America is only $63,000. We're incentivizing people to stay home. What if we gave that additional unemployment benefits to employers to incentivize people to go to work? Well, what if, what if we just cut off the unemployment? I mean, hunger is, a, it, hunger is a pretty powerful thing. I don't mean physical hunger, because people who truly in, are in need need help. I'm talking about people who can work but refuse to work. But the government is, is literally putting anvils in many ways on people's shoulders, either through the mandates, regulations, and now through free money, which obviously we're all going to – the piper eventually has to be paid. Uh, John, yeah. John, I want to ask you, though, about – this, this idea of work-life balance, because, look, no one wants to miss their kids growing up. No one wants to, you, know, you stay in the office your whole life, you, you, you never see your ch family. So I, that's really important. However, have we taken that a step too far when you think of, well, a lot of the millennials talking about, oh, I need time for self-care. I don't know why I'm harping on that tonight, but the whole self-care movement is a little, I mean, my mother is not with us anymore, but she worked by the time she was 12 during the Depression. If she heard the self-care thing, I think her head would explode. <laughs> you know, I think that's right. Old I school. have a friend in the military who trains military dogs, Laura, and they only feed a military dog at night because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. <laughs> Welcome, 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 everybody, to this episode of Bluff Reckoning. Bluff Reckoning 32, baby. We are rolling right along. Um, we Magic just Johnson. Your... <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, uh, Matt Leck. And a little bit later this evening, we're going to be joined by the one, the only, the legendary Harvey J.K., um, we're really excited to have him joining us uh, for his Left Reckoning debut. We're going to be talking Joe Biden 200 days in um, and some of the kind of sloppy comparisons between Joe, Sleepy Joe, and uh, FDR. And then a little bit later, uh, Matt is going to be reviewing one of the books of the year, the book that really lays it all down, American Marxism uh, by Mark uh, Levin. Uh, yep, I'm going to be going to be saving uh, uncles from sloppy anti-communism. <laughs> uncles and aunts all across the country, uncles beware! Matt Leck is coming to, <laughs> to set you straight, um, and much, much more in the post game. But before we get into all of that, um, well, first, I mean, Matt, do you have anything on that Fox News uh, clip? We I covered it a bit last night, but it's it's quite the, the specimen. Oh, you did get into uh, Taffer. Uh, oh, yeah. Talking about no, I mean, my big take about Taffer is that as somebody who spent a lot of time working in uh, in bars, the second that I realized that he is adamantly against shift drinks, I realized this person was somebody I just couldn't even watch even for fun. Right. Exactly. Yeah. He gets all shift drinks, drinks you drink on your shift, uh, I assume, right? At the end of your shift. So like you're off the clock. Okay. You know, it's two, like one thirty in the morning, 30 minutes before the restaurant closes, you know, let a couple of the servers sit at the bar and, you know, recap the day. Uh, honestly, it's a, it's a great little time as you could imagine. That, no, and, that's important that uh, Peter Linbaugh would recognize that as part of the commons. 
of yes, for sure. like literally of the workplace and uh taffer's against that not a surprise that he'd be a freak on that like i love that show for reasons we'll get into maybe in the post game because i do have a lot to say about taffer but I, just on the self-care thing yeah the self-care of not having to go serve the capitalists a capitalist uh, in your locality uh, in order to feed yourself yeah that self-care movement i just i don't know why yeah. laura ingram is so onto that uh, I know you also in yesterday's uh, stream got into the Afghanistan withdrawal stuff, and I have a few notes I want to share mm. on that as well before we get to Harvey K. Um, and the first is um, this tweet from Jim Shudo. He is a CNN anchor and NatSec correspondent for CNN, so uh, uh, basically a controlled um, asset as seen a lot like the the one thing to know about the military well let me not jump ahead of myself um and you know very uh you know get to the lead too fast i think i know that's not really a thing but jim shudo says this too many times i've witnessed the u.s military attempt to dutifully carry out difficult and dangerous missions left to them by the miscalculations of civilian leaders now we've covered threats to democracy on this program uh we have a special focus for that not only the republicans which is just the explicit part of their um basically job at this point but also democrats Mm -hmm. but we would be remiss if we didn't point out that the united states military is contrary to democracy in an alarming and a kind of world challenging sort of way uh and i want to kind of put two book recommendations out there to folks i think in times like this, um, I think podcasts are great. I'm a podcaster myself. I think deep reading is really what's needed, I think, yeah. uh, generally. So two books I'd recommend with that in mind. Uh, one for the um, Afghan side of things. A lot of people are recommending Anand Gopal's No Good Man Among the Living. Uh, uh, I'm only about halfway through that, but uh, good um, illustration of, for instance, like the Taliban and the uh, Soviet occupation there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the prime through. And another book by a guy named Michael Hastings, uh, who a journalist who passed away, we'll touch on that briefly, but he wrote a book called The Operators uh, in 2012, and that was built on a piece called The Runaway General that he wrote for Rolling Stone about Stanley McChrystal. And basically, uh, Crystal, it, it got McChrystal fired uh, because he was just completely just disdainful of the idea that civilians would be um, in control of this sort of thing. And uh, a few other uh, interesting thing to note about this operator's book is you get a nice uh, in-depth look, not only at McChrystal and David Petraeus, but Mm -hmm. also the Flynn uh, brothers. A lot of people don't uh, maybe not know, but Michael Flynn, the uh, uh, disgraced NSA advisor under Trump, uh, psycho QAnon guy now, um, he has got a brother, uh, Charlie Flint, I believe is yeah Charles Flint, who is currently the commanding general of the U.S. military in the Pacific. Um, mm. So you get a view of those guys. I want to share a brief moment from the operators. Actually, it's a little bit. It's a couple of minutes. So I'm going to share it a little bit sped up yeah. so we can avoid um, any kind of reprisals. But this is a really important book, and I to to, to understand our military and like the way it's being. Like again, there's a, both um, party propaganda apparatus are going to be spreading blame onto politicians, and that's great. Politicians deserve a lot of blame for Afghanistan. We also got to mm. make sure, like, we don't revert into like, let's get rid of politicians. Um, 
I'll be here as long as it takes, he told me. Just don't tell the wife that. This is high-stakes poker. This is a world-class game here. We're playing for these chips, blood and treasure. The Grim Reaper is absolutely going to get us all, so why slow down? I saw what the guys meant about Lamb. His freewheeling thought process didn't lend itself to soundbites. Lamb kept hitting an idea that McChrystal had first mentioned at the bar in Paris, and then I'd seen it in action at JFM. The loyalty to McChrystal, the desire to make him happy and to please him, often ended with a general getting an inaccurate picture of what was actually taking place. Men like Lamb and McChrystal told themselves they operated within a strict code of honor. A brotherhood and friendship, unique to the warrior brand, trumped all other values. And this is where I saw the flaw. How could they, at the same time, be involved in cover-ups? With Tillman, with torture, with endless allegations of reckless civilian killing? How did those actions fit into the images they had of themselves as honorable men? The answer, I believed, was that they considered the loyalty that they felt for one another as the highest measure of integrity. Any crime or transgression, any acts of immorality they committed or ordered were excused, in their own minds, by the high principles that guided them. Any act of violence, any atrocity, any action they were called upon or felt compelled to do in order to complete the mission and protect their own pack, whether it was leaking to the press or forcing a president down a path he didn't want to take, they saw as acceptable. The military culture was by nature authoritarian, and it was there they were most comfortable. Even if, as special forces operators, they pushed against its rigidness, they still felt more at home among their brothers on the inside than on the outside. In fact, with the special forces, the element of separateness, the insulated feeling of superiority was even greater. They could do things that other men couldn't do, and had done them. Good or bad, if it was the mission, then it was permissible. If it was for us against them, it was inherently right. And so there's a few other things in there. You get one, I think, important thing to stress, though, is the matter-of-fact way that these sorts of generals understand that capturing the media in the run-up to something like Iraq or in the maintenance of an occupation like, like Afghanistan is just part of the mission. They, they have no scruples about it. It's just like taking a bridge point or something like that. Um, and journalism hasn't filled the void of Michael Hastings. Um, he passed away in uh, 2013. People have to check out like this book, um, the way of writing and also being able to burn, um, uh, and I don't think he did anything wrong, uh, journalistically, ethically speaking, I think it's all BS, but he did, uh, publish things that, uh, powerful people in the military didn't want to see published and ruined careers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, his death, there's speculation about whether it's suspicious. He was in a car, uh, it crashed uh, early in the morning. And I don't have anything definite to say about the speculation. I'd be interested to follow developments uh, uh, in it. New York Magazine wrote about it a while ago. Um, but I will say that, one, I would I um, think that it's, it's a testament to somebody's work that people are suspicious when they die a tragic death early on. It means you've been doing something right. Um, and I also think that these are uh, murderers and, uh, and wouldn't have too many scruples against doing something like that. It could be a, a mistake, but I think it's a good example um, he set. Uh, and, of course, the military is one target. The CIA is another. That, um, that's who's probably going to be uh, dealing with that area of the world now more. But um, the military is not our friend, and uh, they're not just like being let down by politicians. These are, this is a very dangerous yeah. group of people. <clears throat> no, I, 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 fundamentally. And I think, you know, just bringing it back to, you know, Afghanistan and the withdrawal, I just want to say two things up front, right? I think that most people listening to this probably share our view that the United States absolutely should not be there. 
um, and it's a good thing for them to leave, right? And the only reasonable policy for the United States to take right now is to accept as many refugees as logistically possible. And all this nonsense that we've been seeing, the crowded airports, the desperation from people, those were policy decisions by the Biden administration. Yes. Um, and I, th- I think people need to, to reckon with that. I think there's been a lot of, you know, I just want to get those top line things out of the way just so people who are watching this, you know, don't misunderstand our criticism here um, because we want to take this, this longer and, and, and more structural view because a lot of the discourse post uh, withdrawal now has been uh, populated by two main themes, right? Extreme kind of partisan hackery, right? Which is so despicable at the end of the day. Um, you know, people who are fervent supporters of Joe Biden coming up with any, you know, ridiculous excuse for the complete failure that this withdrawal has been for him um, or right wingers who are very much against the war when Trump was president now, you know, switching their tune dramatically on it. Um, but beyond that kind of partisan stuff, there's also been this like chilling anti-democracy threat. And that's what you're hitting at too. And I, I think is one of the bigger lessons that we need to be wrestling with because look, you know, I'm somebody who thinks our system is fundamentally broken, um, but you can't turn your back on basic principles of, of democracy and these ideals, right? And when you start to see people saying, you know, liberals saying things like, oh, the American public shouldn't have opinions on you on the United States foreign wars, right? Or Americans shouldn't have opinions on these things because they don't understand them and they should leave them to the technocrats or the people who know, one, every kind of you know, bone in your body as a, you know, as a person who supposedly lives in a free or democratic society should be screaming at that moment. And two, these are the people, right? The, the clip that Matt just played, who are these experts, right? And and these technocrats, you're saying, leave it over to the experts, right? Um, It's a whole class of people who really do thrive um, in the shadows and they thrive in misinformation and they, they understand the military specifically um, and certainly the CIA that controlling the narrative and controlling the media is critical for their mission. Right. And you shouldn't let them get away with that just because things might, um, you know, seem, seem too complicated. Again, it's one of these things where they try to make things appear that way to, to, uh, to deny the clear and obvious. Why the hell is the United States um, in a country halfway across the globe, right? Fighting a mission against uh, a concept. Um, it's uh, it's it's been absurd from the get go. It's been absurd. I mean, this has been the defining one of the defining uh, geopolitical moments of of our life, right, Matt? It's like the the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. Um, hell yeah, you should have an opinion of it, and don't let anybody tell you different. Yeah, right, right on. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that that's the last refuge. I mean, you went over the Tom Nichols thing. Maybe we'll touch on it later, but. This is all our fault when at the lead into the occupation, he's like, I'm pretty sure I looked over the plans. And from what I can see. No. And, and honestly, like, uh, I don't want to run it out too, too much. And maybe we'll talk a little bit with Harvey about this, but one thing that does worry me or frustrate me, I should say, is so much of like contemporary, like centrist, like liberalism, right. Is actually like trying to foreclose debate. Right. Um, you know, there's the hilarious examples like that, you know, that TikTok, like, we'll talk about it later, kiddo, in reference to, uh, you know, Joe Biden's immigration policies that continue to be absolutely horrible when he was in office. Yeah. Um, right. That's foreclosing any kind of debate on like the Obama administration and the culpability of the Democratic Party has in these, uh, you know, horrors and atrocities. Right. Um, and then this most recent one in regards to Afghanistan is like, oh, it's too complicated. And if you don't have a PhD um, in these things, then. 
uh, you know, you shouldn't be able to comment on it, which again, is an extremely anti-democratic ideal, the radical idea of democracy, right? Why this is, remember as a Marxist, like you view like society evolving in stages. One of the radical ideas of, of democracy is that actually everybody in a society has the same uh, potential of being able to understand the world around them and to advocate for something better, right? And the tension that you see in the American society is that um, for most of our history, that hasn't been achievable um, because of the the stranglehold that the ruling class has had over the military and you know, all these other things, right? But that idea is really critical. Um, and you should never turn your back on it or let anybody uh, to tell you otherwise. Because remember, you know, the credentialed class, <laughs> how many PhDs um, and so-called experts in foreign policy, how many of them push for this, right? A hell of a lot of them. How many of them were employed um, either, you know, overtly or covertly um, by <laughs> pro-war uh, movements to push for this? A hell of a lot. Um, and, you know, don't let anybody think that, don't let anybody act like they have some ability to sort of supersede a democratic right and the fundamental questions that come with living in democracy, which is like, you have to be able to make your case to the people. That's it. That's the game. Absolutely. Well, we're going to, I have some more stuff I want to talk about, especially like the way Biden's letting Stephen Miller have a veto over our refugees. Um, yes. So I think that's probably best got to with uh, Harvey. So uh, uh, patreon.com slash left reckoning uh, folks to get the post game this evening. Uh, where we'll, like we said, go into John Taffer and um, uh, 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 stuff like that. We got some Bezos. We, Bezos uh, didn't realize that space is dark um, and a few other fun clips too. Looking forward to that. Um, but we'll be back in a second with Harvey K.
folks, we are live with David Griscom as always, and historian Professor Harvey J.K. Professor Emeritus Harvey J.K. Harvey, welcome uh, for your first appearance on Left Reckoning, I believe. Yes, and I want everyone to know if they're not already, they should sign up as Patreons. I did right away as soon as David let me know that they were going to launch this. And I, I'll tell, tell you guys, um, every time I'd go to New York and be on the show with Michael, and I was looking at these two guys, in any break, I would turn to Michael and I would say, where'd you find these guys? These guys are brilliant. You know, I actually felt, I actually felt almost ignorant next to them. The one guy had a, a literature podcast show. The other guy was, the other guy was both a philosopher and an economist. I mean, you guys always just blew me away. I felt, boy, oh boy, what did I walk into here? But I also will tell you that I'm not, I was never, as you know, a fan of Althusser and I know you were, you were doing that. So uh. <laughs> well, that's true. we were always, we always really enjoyed having you in and, uh, you know, your knowledge of, of history and also, um, you know, Marxism as, as well was really, was really a real treat and you're fun too. You know, that's, that's a rare thing. A lot of people who know these kind of things, they're not a lot of fun to talk to and hang right. out with. <laughs> well, I remember one time Barbara Ehrenreich wrote a piece. This is before you guys could read probably, but she wrote this piece <laughs> and she said, if, if the left and socialism aren't going to be fun, we're never going to win. <laughs> that's very true. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There you go. That's, uh, and that's, that's the secret TMBS metric that we had in the grading of our guests that uh-huh. we're crossing oh, that way. Well, yeah. Thanks. Harvey, uh, Joe Biden crossed 200 days. Uh, has he achieved FDR level greatness? Like uh, some okay. people uh, promised us. <laughs> well, let, let's start off with the number 200. Mm-hmm. Okay. Start off there. Now, let, well, Pratt, we should probably sidebar this and say, look, yes, we know that the Democrats have a slim majority major, margin in the House, okay? And they, if you count it, they don't really have a majority in the Senate, but let's, because it's not just Manchin and Cinema, it's also decidedly that whole core of corporate Dems, including the two senators from, from Delaware, the guy who most antagonizes me is Chris Coons. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, if I can just say, he especially antagonizes me and also reminds me of how often inadequate, I'll forget anything else, just plain inadequate Biden has been because Biden, I'm sure Biden mentored Chris Coons. Yeah. And if Chris Coons is going to, he voted no on the, how could anyone, I mean, I, th- I thought the, de- the Republicans would have been smart if they voted for the 15, because they, then they would have guaranteed 2022 mm-hmm. victory for themselves. I mean, it's, it's so blatantly bizarre and sick that, that the, the minimum wage is as low as it is, what, seven and a quarter, seven fifty at best. And, you know, so anyhow, so you look at the Democrats. It's the, let's remember the Democrats themselves as a party. I mean, you heard me go over this over and over again all these years. They've just been so inadequate. They just turned their back on the FDR tradition. And frankly, I mean, if we could for a moment forget LBJ and Vietnam, then they turn their back on the LBJ um, mm-hmm. vision. You know, the Great Society, as inadequate as it was compared, say, to the New Deal, was really in many ways at least uh, a revival of the New Deal. And and we would be lucky to have a Great Society set of initiatives right now. So, look, FDR became famous for the 100 days, okay? The 100 days. Oh, and I should also say, in defense of FDR, that he didn't have... 
the kind of Democratic Party that he would have liked. He had the Southern Democrats to contend mm-hmm. with, the white supremacists. OK, I mean, African-Americans in the South, if they could have voted, they would have voted in mass for FDR after the first couple of years of the New Deal. And they became solidly Democratic ever after, you might say. But it's the case that he had to deal with white supremacists in the South who were more than happy for dollars to flow into the South as long as the dollars didn't dictate any kind, any kind of integration or denial of the power of Jim Crow. So, you know, we'll keep that in mind. So FDR, I mean, I can assure you that the New Deal would have been all the more, I mean, it was radical enough. Ben Burgess and I can go at this sometime. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, I mean, the the, the New Deal years were radical years. They were in context of American history. I'd go so far as to say they were revolutionary, but they could have been truly revolutionary had it not been for those white supremacists who controlled congressional committees in the House and the Senate, because, you know, the South was a one party regime. Mm -hmm. And once you were elected in the South, you were there for life. Mm -hmm. So in essence, since seniority determined chairmanship of committees, you can imagine. And I say chairmanship because they were all men. Okay, Um, so FDR had had to contend with that. Well, Biden, we're post civil rights. I know civil rights and voting rights are under terrible siege, but it is the case we are far beyond the kind of white supremacy, segregation, Jim Crow of the 30s. And so if we think about it, Biden should have been able to wield, I mean, his leadership should have mattered to the Democrats, and he should have been able to not only do an American rescue plan, but an American rescue plan that included, I mean, hell, $15 minimum wage. How many years have have working people been fighting for that, especially poor working people? And that, sorry, Matt, if I'm going on a bit, don't just go give me the, the timeout kind of thing. Okay? Yeah, I mean, I think I just want to jump in. Like, that's the that's the key problem is the Chris Coons thing. Like, we have all this focus on mansion and cinema. I mean, just mm-hmm. the imagining how FDR would deal with uh, uh, sort of elements like that in his party. It wouldn't be to get his sort of proxy and Chris Coons to give them cover as well, which I think is is clearly what's going on. I think, like, the way Jeff Flake was sort of a guy who soaked up never Trump animus during Mm. the Trump administration. I think mansion and cinema are sort of the same thing. Uh, Yes. Oh, that's, that's a, that, that's really, that's a good example. In fact, and you know, in fact, I'll come back to LBJ. I'm not a, it's not that I'm, I mean, I was 15, I think when he first ran 64, but think think about LBJ is he really knew, I mean, physically knew how to twist arms. Yeah. And, and Biden, the only time I, any of us ever saw Biden get agitated was when he was sort of haranguing his fellow Democrats to cut into Social Security and Medicare. And, and I kept I actually said to people, I once I was in a conversation with John Nichols from The Nation. We've been friends a long time. This was an off the record conversation. But I'll say right now, I, I would say to him, you know, I, I think we, we maybe we're underestimating Biden. Maybe that same that same energy that, that led him to be so antagonistic to entitlements right, might lead him to, to, you know, to become a leader. Mm-hmm. And but frankly, he's I don't know if it's the age thing. I mean, and whatever else might be happening to his body, but he's just not dynamic. And and Harris, look, I'm, I, I, people can say what they want. Harris is just inadequate altogether. Right. Right? There's yeah. just no question. She's a good fundraiser, which is why they brought her in. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. but, I, you know, I wanted like just specifically on the like FDR um, comparison, because it was one thing like in the early days of this show, we've been sort of pushing back against that narrative 
um, with oh, well, one yeah, because, sure. you know, because one is it's not true. And, and two, it's, it's been really interesting to see how Biden does govern in terms of like his public persona in the media, man, and I have like kicked around this term from like the, he's the uh, press release president, right? Where he'll put <laughs> out this release, right? And it'll be like, we're going to do all this and we're going to address like racial inequities in this country and we're going to fight for working people. Right. But, but it, one is a press release, right? And it's, yeah. it's geared for people in Politico and Vox to write, you know, how great see? this is. See, yeah, the great thing it. is, even though he's not doing it, and two, just specifically on the FDR uh, question, I just would like to hear your perspective on this. The parliamentarian um, oh, kind of yeah. drama that we get from Biden and the constitutional scholar stuff, right? Where it's like, whenever he wants to do something, it's always like, oh, well, we had to ask this like secret group of constitutional scholars if we can do it or not. And, and then also, we can never deal with the parliamentarian. I can't imagine, you know, comparing somebody to FDR who just would not immediately take up uh, the cause of whatever progressive things he was trying to push through Congress and leave it yeah. as, oh, the parliamentarian blocked it. Um, have nothing you know, to fear, to but... On, they say we well, can't do and, it. By the way, and that, that also then is, it compels me to call attention to the fact that FDR... Look, another reason I say the Democrats are so inadequate is that there was a great senator from New York that FDR really depended upon as in fact, he was called the pilot of the New Deal. And that was Robert mm-hmm. Wagner, the se- Robert Wagner Sr., who was a, as a boy was a German immigrant to the United States. And he was solidly social democratic. I mean, absolutely. And FDR would have been all the more publicly, I believe, a social democrat. I have little doubt about it. But again, he had to contend with the kinds of Southern Democrats he had. But the thing is about that with FDR is this. He knew how to go on radio and speak directly to the American people. And, and the fundamental thing about that, and this is something I don't think, I don't think liberals are ever willing to admit this. Mm-hmm. And the left hesitates to admit it because they don't want to embrace FDR too much. And it's that FDR wanted to rally the troops, you might say. He wanted to speak to Americans because he wanted them to raise hell. Mm-hmm. Okay? And in fact, as one, one, I think it was North Carolina textile worker, wrote to FDR and he said, he said, you're, you're, you're my guy because you know, my boss is a son of a bitch, you know? <laughs> I mean, cause, cause FDR, you know, he, he said, I welcome the hatred of the capitalists basically. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, is that this is something that I know we're in the age of COVID and all that, but when FDR in 1935 saw the antagonisms emerging amongst capitalists who really hated it, Okay, mm-hmm. what he, he not only took to the radio, gave remarkable some of the most radical speeches ever given by an American president. He told his cabinet to go out and mm-hmm. get people to organize, including I mean, it's very clear about it. He wanted women to organize in consumer movements. And I don't mean like, you know, like the consumer reports st- type stuff. I'm talking about the kind of on the ground movement that could literally combat price rises mm-hmm. okay and and as a consequence in 1935 36 and beyond there began what the nation magazine at the time called the very first national women's movement since suffrage and that was the housewives movement which was the idea they were going to organize alongside labor versus capital mm-hmm. and and this was fdr's idea of how you how you create a presidency you create I can say it here amongst fellow people, you know, Marxists is the idea. He wanted that dialectic between people and president. That to him was what 
a democratic presidency had to be about. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, it's it, it's it's uh, it's it's hard sometimes to talk about Biden and his strategy because it, it, it's just clear he doesn't think in the same way, or I don't even think particularly wants to do a lot of these things. Um, but one example to me that is so was so frustrating to me even early on in the Biden administration and when these comparisons were being made was, you know, these these checks uh, that came out under Trump and under Biden. Those are some of the most popular programs yeah. that the federal government has done. I probably in my lifetime, people uh, love definitely them. in your lifetime, <laughs> <laughs> you know, people love those and because it really helped them out. And, you know, one thing I've been telling people, there's a really great piece uh, that I was actually revisiting uh, lately by uh, Mike Davis, the new left review called trench warfare, which was sort of looking at the data of the 2020 election. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the big things here that I've been paying attention in, in, in Texas was what happened with, the binding coalition, what was the binding coalition in Texas, right? And the frightening thing about the binding coalition, right, is that he starts to lose, um, Trump eats into the black vote and the Hispanic vote um, in ways that are, you know, just they can boggle your mind. But when you sent people in to talk to people in those communities, do you know what folks said? I'd like Donald to Trump sent me a check for $1,200 and I really appreciated that. <laughs> and, you know, and it's like we can, you know, squ- squabble about how true all that kind of stuff is. But you know what? If Biden was out there every day saying, this is my thing, this is what we're doing, and we're going to do a lot more of it, I could have, I just couldn't imagine it even being close. And then as president now, you see him sort of sprinting away from all of these programs that, again, are extremely popular. Well, first of all, I want to say you're being very kind to say that he can sprint anywhere. OK, that's for a start uh, physically. But, but, but more significantly is the fact that they don't they, I don't even think they understand that. Look, remember, there was the six hundred dollar check that finished off the Trump, mm-hmm. the Trump presidency. And they, they kept talking about a two thousand dollar check. Mm-hmm. And then they said they reduced it to fourteen hundred. Well, why? Because, well, they already gave us six hundred. We don't have to fulfill the two thousand. It's like, couldn't they figure out that the first thing that people would say is, wait a minute, where's the other? Where's the other 600 yeah. or whatever it's supposed to be, you know? Like, I mean, here's the new Democrats welcome a technicality that means you get $600 <laughs> less than you thought. Like, Yeah, well, so, okay. I mean, then if we think about another thing about Biden is this. The, the fact is that he could possibly redeem a little bit of FDR. He could possibly, because I don't want to leave. I don't want to. It's it's so easy to knock Biden and it's and it's fun to do it, really. But it's also the case that is there any way to redeem the moment? And let's there is a way. I, I, I'm, this is a, a long shot, given we're talking Joe Biden. So let's imagine that the Democrats actually do what they keep promising to do. That is, they literally in tandem enact the, I hate to even call it a bipartisan infrastructure bill, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And the other $33.5 trillion infrastructure, 3.5, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's suppose they get those things through. Now, as a sidebar to that, and I know we only have so much time, I do want to say to go back to one of, I think it was Matt or one of you said it, um, is the fact that Biden says one thing and at the same time he does something else. And not too many weeks ago, everyone was talking about the antitrust moment was they were going to have we were going to see the breakup of the big corporate trusts. Presumably, mm-hmm. that would mean ag trusts and big tech trusts. OK, mm-hmm. or, I mean, I'm using the old term trusts. Yeah. Um, but but 
And they appointed uh, Lena Khan to head the Federal Trade Commission and a man whose name I constantly blow because he has a name not unlike one of my students. But they named an, an assistant attorney general, a, a guy who was clearly an antitrust advocate. OK, mm-hmm. but here the bill that has come together that Biden is so ready to sign there. There are loopholes in that which would literally enli- entitle the likes of Comcast and, and other, you know, sort of co- um, telecom companies not to be the ones who literally go into the rural areas for the broadband access, you know, right. to lay out. Now, all they'll do literally is offer yet another multi, multi-billion dollar gift to the, these big, you know, corporations. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I wish they, I wish the right hand would talk to the left hand. It's not an administration that's strikingly clever. Let me put it mm-hmm. that way, but let's come back. Let's suppose they pass those two things. Now, on their, I mean, on their own, they're, they're great and yet inadequate. I mean, the Green New Deal has been marginalized in too many ways. Um, we could go on and on. But here's the thing. You and I, we all know, the three of us know, that the $15 minimum wage, if that doesn't happen, this, this administration will, will be remembered for failing the working poor. OK, mm-hmm. it's also the case that they've literally have you heard anything about expanding health care? No, no. OK. Have you heard anything? Although I wait, let me back off what I'm about there's to say. Little, there's some Medicare expansion, wasn't there in the uh... some floated? Yeah. yeah, yes, there is. Yeah, there is. And also there are some elements, I understand, of the PRO Act, the, the workers' rights bill. That I mean, the PRO Act would be magnificent. Up. And yeah, it's keep, parts go, of the PRO going. Act, right? But, yeah. It, yeah. It, but here's what Biden could do to show to show he's, he actually knows what it might be like to be more like FDR, okay? And it's this. Let's suppose they pass that. Well, I'm sure there are plenty of pens on the executive desk, right, the president. You ought to pick them up and start signing three executive orders, right? The first executive order is any worker who is working for some company that receives federal dollars for the infrastructure labors, will be guaranteed, must be guaranteed health care. That's the first. The second is anybody working in the infrastructure budget terms will be guaranteed with his or her fellow workers the right to organize and collective bargaining, undeterred by the company for which they work. Okay. And third, the third one would be let's see, we mentioned the health, we mentioned the oh, healthcare, $15. I'm, I'm blanked. I blanked on the third. Did I mention three? The Was it fifteen dollars? I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and must be paid a minimum of fifteen dollars, right? Yeah, so there's your three executive orders. They could do it as one grand executive order. Call it the, call it the the Democratic executive order, whatever it is. Now it's important. Admittedly, if the Republicans should win next time around, they could always rescind those things. But I can tell you, if you've got millions of workers who are getting fifteen dollars an hour and all of a sudden some republican says he's going to lift that i could tell you maybe finally you'll see workers in the streets yeah make them do it make them pay that price and in the meantime you get paid more and get a union (laughs) yeah right yeah and at least you have the union then right okay so the thing is that that would be a way to start building on on this infrastructure plan but by the way to go back to to matt's 200 days it should have been done in 100 days because um, if you don't get the work underway, if you don't get people employed, if you don't get them engaged, especially with these executive orders empowering them, people aren't going to even appreciate mm-hmm. this stuff. And they'll go into 2022 
look, I don't think people are going to shift and vote for Republicans. I'm more worried they just ain't going to vote. I'm worried. I think think that they are, honestly. I mean, I think that a lot of working people won't vote because that's been the trend. I think a lot of the gains that were critical for Biden will evaporate pretty quickly because a lot of the people who who were critical for Biden's win, I don't want to get too much like horse race stuff, but like a lot of people who were critical for Biden's win um, were these, you know, kind of upper middle class white suburban voters who typically trend Republican, right? But there was a kind of revolt against Donald Trump, rightfully so. Um, and I don't know, sometimes I wonder if Biden is playing more to that class of people than what you would expect his traditional base being, you know, working people and people of color, right? I see a lot more of, of this, of, uh, of the way that he's trying to sell his presidency, not necessarily to like working people as much as like to those that kind of class of folks. And at the end of the day, the amount of stuff that he's bungled is not really going to sit yeah. well with those people either. Right. Cause they're just a kind of credentialed class too. They like things to be. Well, like that's true. Scams. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, it's hard to argue with that right now because we, we, because I do think you're right about Biden who is playing to. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that I do believe, but I think it's, I think it's also the case that I'm not convinced that, the more Trump opens his mouth, the greater I, the chance he won't lose those folks. Yeah, I think I think it's not a foregone conclusion that the Democrats can't win with a suburban strategy in continuance. And we keep these very slim margins like mm-hmm. um, the, they also did the um, the child care um, allowance benefits, too. And that's also going to be uh, good in the suburbs like they can maybe do just enough to squeak by with the type of electorate that doesn't put uh, more pressure on them than they don't want. But I will also tell you to go back now to the FDR example is Mm -hmm. FDR didn't didn't say to himself, well, if we get these things through, we're going to be in good shape. What he said actually was new laws in themselves do not bring the new millennium. Mm -hmm. What he meant by that is you got to come. You're going to have to be ready to fight. okay? and right now, Right now, it's like everybody in the labor movement is like people are. I mean, there are people out on strike, but I haven't heard Biden come out again and say, you know, saying, hey, there are Nabisco workers on strike. There are, you know, there are nurses in any number of places on strike. I mean, look, where's Biden right now coming up for the, you know, for the folks in in, in, at Warrior Matt in Alabama, right? In In a red state coming up and saying, hey, you know, this big firm that came and bought out this this company when they were in, in trouble, right? And is now screwing the workers once they become profitable profitable again. Why is Biden not up there right now standing up with those people very vocally, right? And even like, even on a completely cynical move, right? To just hit the Republicans and this kind of right-wing push, you know, because I know you're very adamant and, and are worried about this kind of like populist right-wing veneer that some of these new Republicans are doing. Like we stand up for the workers against these kind of corporate yeah. uh, Democrats, right? Squash that right away. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's what you've got a cabinet for. Send Walsh down. Okay. Mm-hmm. Send send anyone you can out of the cabinet who, who might have a, a, some kind of connection to labor and do it. Okay. Show you've got to show solidarity for people to show solidarity for you with you. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, that's the the thing is like we might get parts of the pro act in this bill, but it's also like if you had control of your party, you could just pass that thing, and we. Right. right. And yeah. we wouldn't have to worry about like what the parliamentarian is going to say about the penalties to employers. Oh, um, by, 
Yes. And by the way, we, I mean, obviously, we haven't even mentioned the filibuster question, but let's not, we don't need to go there. But regarding that Senate, that, that what do they call it? The sec, secretary, what is it called? The Senate parliamentarian. Senate parliamentarian. Right. <laughs> First of all, it was to FDR's advantage that he never served in the Congress. Hmm. He was a he was a state senator and a governor of New York, and he served in, a, in the cabinet under Wilson as a sub cabinet member. And so, in essence, he he had more experience as an executive, as a mm-hmm. go, you know as a governor, and and so you know he he learned to work with people in Congress, whereas Biden thinks he knows Congress, okay, and thinks somehow if he dances properly, things will work out. Well, that's bullshit. We know that. Mm-hmm. We, we we've already seen it. It started with the fifteen dollars. Assuming he look, I mean, it's even hard to believe Biden didn't want the fifteen dollars. It's just. It's just impossible to believe he he didn't want that. Um, he's just, that was a sign of his inadequacy to me. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a weird. I mean, it's a weird moment, and you know, I just want to catch myself too when we're talking about Biden and the Biden administration. I'm just speaking for myself here. It's like you know, trying to understand these plays and what they're doing is less so for me giving free advice um, to Biden and the Democrats and more trying to understand the stage and the moment that that we're in, right? Because like at the end of the day, it's like the reality is, is that, um, you know, they're answering to their people and they're doing, uh, you know, they're doing the favors for the folks who get They're answering out. to the National Restaurant Association. Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> and, and, yes, yes, they are. And, and I, and I, and I want to back off and say, I actually have no idea whether Biden would really want the $15 an hour or not. I think, but, but it, can but I just say ter- real quick, I think he yeah. would like it in a case where we're not in the middle of a, like a, maybe a pandemic and the economy was just booming in a real way. But I think in a moment like we're in now, I think that's also why he's not in a hurry to do anything about student loans. It's like, mm-hmm. we need to basically crack the whip and get people back to work. And then then we can start giving away more goodies, I think. Well, and there, there he's utterly different than FDR as well, because <laughs> FDR believed not just for the sake of the politics of it, but he actually believed if you want to get your economy moving and dynamic, OK, give people money to spend and, and make mm-hmm. it happen as quickly as you can. Um, the other thing I was going to say to, to maybe to connect to something really important to all of us is that um, so much of. This is the I've said this a number of times in the last few weeks, and that is that the left will always be up against the wall until the labor movement. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing in these strikes is is the beginnings of worker agitation. And somehow, and I, I, I'm going to say this somehow, your show and other shows, and I and I have little doubt of your your desire to do so. And I know the kinds of people you've had on. The more we can become the vehicle for those for that for for the for the work for the working class to recognize itself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. we're going to be the better off we're going to be. Okay, there is no future for the left unless there's a future for a dynamic labor movement. Yeah, and it's like I, I sort of have to paraphrase it because I don't have the direct quote, but it's one of those things like somebody who we've been influenced a lot by is like Leo Panitch, right? Oh, um, sure. Yeah. You know, who's, well, you know, years, yeah. yeah, an incredible, incredible human being and, and, and a theorist and a thinker. Um, and he, he pushes back against some of the kind of doomerism, right? Um, which might be a little bit of an online term, but that, you know, a lot of people on the left have, especially around climate, right? Which is like, obviously things are really bad. But if you want to yeah. build this movement, if you want to win and, and take power and do good and help out your community and help out society, we can't lose the ability to be able to think two years, five years, 10 years down the line, 
um, because then we'll always be on this kind of backseat. Because you know, when we're sitting here right now, we saw this incredible moment with Bernie Sanders um, yes. that really mobilized a hell of a lot of people. And a lot of people started to believe that politics could change their lives for the better, which is not yeah. something that many people um, think. But then in the absence of Bernie, we're in this kind of, of a loss, right? Um, and without a structure, we don't have... Um, the ability to organize ourselves to move in a collective, right? So you get a lot of people who do like media strategies, for example, right? Like, oh, if only we frame this argument a certain way, things are going to change, right? And essentially what you're arguing for is like, we just need to find a better way to beg, right? And the only, you know, and it's like, that's, you know, I mean, it, it, it can work sometimes, right? It can be helpful yes, if we can, can create the right, right case. But right. you know, what's a lot more powerful is being able to say like, no, we have power and you need to answer to us. And as you were saying, and, you know, as we say on this show all the time, it has to come through labor and it has to come through the working class understanding itself as that class. And I think getting people to start to recognize that and even though it's a hard realization that like, man, you know, it was nice when we thought we were really close to state power with Bernie Sanders, you know, but being able to look in the mirror, understanding where we are, not in a defeatist way, but not falling into these kind of fantasies that I think some people on the left have fallen into recently is really important. And also thinking constructively about what could somebody like Biden be doing? Like what would state power be looking like in this moment is really helpful as well too. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I twice, twice I fell into the, into the dream mode that Bernie could win. Mm. <laughs> okay, um, I, you know it's funny. The first time, just for the record, for the first the first time around, it came as such a, an amazing surprise. You, you guys may recall. I'm sure I said it back on TMBS that I told must have told Michael I, I was with Bernie from the from the 80s. I thought <laughs> I used to say, "Guys, you think one day I can vote for someone like that in Wisconsin?" And, and you know, I got to vote for him in the primary for president, and I thought it was just great. And I really thought I really thought it might be possible to break the Clinton machine. And, uh, and I can tell you that the American people wanted it. They mm -hmm. wanted that Clinton machine broken. And Bernie would have beaten Trump. I, I, I don't give a shit what anyone says oh, yeah, otherwise. Sure. Yeah. He, he definitely would have beaten Trump in 2016. And then, because keep in mind the states, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, I could tell you that without doubt, he would have won these three states. So... But mm -hmm. then in 2020, I was not so confident in the mostly because there were just so many Democrats, especially when you got the likes of Harris saying she was remember. Do you remember Harris saying she was going to she embraced Medicare for all when she first they all did in some form, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> so classic. But but then I also have to say that I really thought that. I, I had no idea they would gang up on him so effectively, but more important than that is that Bernie didn't have had a punch back. And, and that was the shame of it. And, and of course, our, the, the problem we have right now is we've got, you know, young leftists and, and progressives like your ages. And we've got this, this, this older guy, Bernie Sanders, who, you know, his health is going to be, you know, troubled. We know that. And I just think, what do we do about the middle there? Okay. Yeah. Or am I wrong? Maybe young people, it, maybe they do like older folks, as long as we're on the right side, you know, the left side of the political spectrum so well i mean i think you know i'm not announcing a candidacy i just <laughs> no i mean i'm sure that like honestly i think that uh you know thinking about politics too much by age can be really unhelpful i think people fall into that <laughs> trap a little too often um no but i think uh, you're one thing I did, and one thing we should remind everyone who's listening especially since you're in texas and and you are a texan and i always loved you for that in fact i'll <laughs> i'll tell everyone how many times i used to send you side notes about the fact i don't think 
there was some guest on maybe Jimmy yesterday. I don't think they understand the South. Is what I would say. But it, you know, this, once upon a time, Texas was a stronghold of socialist politics, not just yeah. populist, but socialist politics. So no, I mean that's their history, and I mean uh, maybe this might be a good kind of segue to talk a little bit of, of pain. But I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too. Like, um, you know, the, the the Texas history with with socialism is incredible. You know, our friend uh, Megan Day at, at Jacobin has been writing these really great pieces. Um, yeah. She did a piece on Commonwealth College um, in uh, Northwest Arkansas, which was a kind of radical socialist college in, in rural um, Arkansas in the early 20th century. And she just wrote a pretty interesting piece about the Green Corn uh, Rebellion in, uh, in Oklahoma, right? Oh, I got to read that. Yeah. And it's, that. It's, it's, it's really critical, I think, um, to, to actually be able to orient yourself um, in this, these kind of historical struggles um, and, and, and politics to not treat ideas like socialism, social democracy and Marxism as like these inherently foreign ideologies and actually, you know, realize like, no, man, like your grandfathers or your great great grandfathers or whatever. They were radicals if, uh, you know, if you're from these kind of communities. And because in Texas, it's a it's a great example of, of this, too. It's like people have just sort of accepted that, for example, it's a red state and that's always what it has been. It's like, yeah. no, man, that's not true at all. This was a, it's and, had a very different. And if I remember correctly, Matt. You're from North Dakota. I am. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and, I, which... and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to empower Texas in this conversation over North Dakota. The, <laughs> the left politics historically in North Dakota was an example mm-hmm. for farm labor movements. You, you know. In fact, I assume it's still there. But the only state in the country that actually created a state bank in order to avoid the capitalist banks was North Dakota. That uh, that state bank, the Bank of North Dakota, is what paid for me to go to uh, London and uh, for summer uh, school uh, back in like, 2011 uh. <laughs> and uh, gave me a nice good loan. Um, and I got to enjoy a lot of London um, thanks to that loan. So I appreciate it. Right. And I want everyone else out there to know that Wisconsin was the capital P progressive state mm-hmm. in the early part of the century. And the city of Milwaukee, which I do not live in, I'm 120 miles north, for much of the 20th century was was run by socialist mayors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you know, I'm I'm not saying you know I'm not saying we should worship all of that. I think the fact is that it ought to be a reminder that that east and east and west coast folks. We're not just flyover country, you know? Yeah. No, I, I didn't know. I mean, I think I think it is a certain, it's sort of spiritually nourishing too to find out, like I was reading Hab- Hammer and Ho by uh, Robert oh, yeah. Kelly. And I didn't know Bismarck was the uh, peasant international um, uh, for the Soviets, like in the 20s. So I had no idea, no idea that we don't have a monument to that. You could be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, uh, yeah, but, that's why they placed all those missile silos in North Dakota. Right. They, they wanted to, right? <laughs> um, I think we should save uh, pain for uh, the post. Yeah, so do I. So do I. You've got, some, you've got some stuff to do, I know. But well, I'm going to stick well, around if you – okay. I so. want you to stay – well, you can help us because, um, I mean, we need a historian here to check. Um, I don't think I want to call him a historian. Uh, Mark Levine, <laughs> um, who is uh, – I mean – He's a guy who I've avoided for the half decade I've been doing researcher and producer work, doing a deep dive into just because he's so damn unpleasant um, mm-hmm. to listen to, frankly. Uh, not like Limbaugh, who at least has like some horrific charisma or uh, like Trump, for instance. Levin is just like, if you're if you have a man in your life, which I tip, I assume that's where his audience cues and they like are in like the basement. Listen to Levin. Like you want to give them a, like a 45 minute refractory period before you get into their personality. I think. <laughs> well, at that point. 
Can can I just say on this like history too? I was letting Matt know beforehand. Uh, when I was around like thirteen, my family I grew up in was you know pretty liberal, um, and you know I started pushing back on a lot of those ideals more just because I, I just I, I was sort of seeing through a, a little bit of it, right? Just sort of seeing how it wasn't um, really working for us, and also I mean just honestly, you know, being a poor working class kid, you start to have this thought: it's like, okay, well, if all of my family and the people around me are poor and they all believe this. And the rich people believe this, then maybe there's something in it. Luckily, that was a very short phase. But I do want to um, just note that uh, Levine was one of these people who I remember once I said sort of like, you know, expressed uh, that I wasn't a huge, uh, you know, liberal when I was like 13 or something like that. A family member sort of quietly huddled away handed me a copy of Mark Levine's Liberty and Tyranny um, and told me to read this book, uh, which I did not read much of uh, because it was extremely boring and it felt very hypocritical very quickly. But, you know, I'm just saying like, this is the kind of interactions all across the country that are happening with these kind of right-wing uh, folks and why they are worth, you know, even though like on the intellectual scene, these guys aren't Titans or anything like that, but they influence a lot of people. Um, and, and they, and, you know, it's, it's worthwhile being able to debunk them. Well, you know, when I, sorry, I'll just say that when I, I remember it was you guys and Michael that made, I had no idea who the fuck Ben, sorry, can I say that word? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ben Shapiro was, <laughs> or for that matter, Dave Rubin. I had no idea. Okay. But in the last few months, I made it a point of reading some, I believe it or not, I've actually been reading a bit of Ben Shapiro. And as I was saying to Matt before, I was going to buy Levin's new book, which I think is where you want to go, right? But I, <laughs> I, I backed off. Had I known, I, I definitely would have. I, I'd like to. I would have been better prepared for this. But teach me about more about Mark Levin's new book. Yeah. So American Marxism is his new book. Um, just to give a little bit of background. Well, let's let's figure out why this this came to my attention. So Sam Holdley Brill <laughs> at Deontologist posted a couple of uh, videos here of uh, Mark Levin who is, uh, he's turned his sights on American Marxism. And I don't know if he's had the best research assistance um, <laughs> as, as he makes the shift from uh, Solinsky um, uh, hysteric to uh, Marx hysteric. Um, but here is, uh, here's just a little... A race theory, which comes out of critical theory that was invented by a Marxist from the Franklin School of Marxism. <laughs> Okay, when you look at the background of critical race theory, this comes out of critical theory. Where does that come from? It comes from a school called the Franklin School that comes out of Berlin. These are a group of Marxists. One of the gentlemen fled Hitler, came to the United States. He became a very prominent professor. His name is Herbert Marcuse. From the Franklin School of Marxism. Now, look, people people misspeak. It happens. Um, you know, I I talk a lot on air, um, and you mispronounce things, mistake words. Here's a screenshot from American Marxism, which I obtained uh, not through Ooh. a uh, commercial venue. I'll just say, <laughs> leave it there. Um, Franklin School that comes out of Berlin. Oops. These are a group of Marxists. Oh, well, sorry, I still got I still got Levin playing in the background there. Um, here is. Uh, the screen grab here and the error. There you is, go. Yeah. What was that? Marxist, a Franklin school thinker. <laughs> uh, 
he writes, Herbert Marcuse is credited with hatching the critical theory ideology from which the racial, gender, and other critical oh. theory-based movements were launched in America. As mentioned earlier, he was a German-born Hegelian Marxist ideologue of the Franklin School of <laughs> Political Theorists. Now, guys, what what's where did where did no where did Mark go wrong here? I mean, it, it, that is exceptional because the first time I had seen the clip, I, I had the same thought as you. It's like that's very funny to dunk on him, but if that got into the book, I mean, it shows you everything you need to know about these these guys. I know we have some poll quotes too, so we can we can give it a fair shake, right? Um, but you know, this is it's one of these things where again. Sometimes I have to say to myself, it's like, I'm going to spend as much time seriously debunking these guys' arguments as they spent actually reading the text that they're criticizing, which is zero, <laughs> um, right? And and to sit here and and to tie, um, you know, all of these things that are happening. I mean, how, how coincidental is it, Matt, that all of these big buzzwords, right, that if you type into YouTube right now, those are all the top hits for videos, um, all seem to stem from Marxism and the Franklin School, <laughs> the Frankfurt so... School, right? <laughs> Yeah, let's pause here and go into a little bit of Mark Levin history. So this is the origin story. And he, this is what he does. He he crowbars himself into these movements. I mean, just to give a little bit of his, his history, which he'll start here. He uh, He's basically like a wannabe Grover Norquist in the late 70s, uh, anti-tax guy, law student, um, that eventually got picked up by the Reagan administration to run in uh, at the Action Organization, which would go on to become AmeriCorps. He'll tell you more about that later um, and how he tries to crowbar into that, into the ACORN moment. Um, and then after he left the Limbaugh, or Limbaugh the uh, Reagan administration, administration uh, he became basically rush limbaugh's unofficial legal scholar he used to call in a whole lot um he, this was also he's working at a right-wing think tank in dc um but he used to call in about the monica Lewinsky stuff and apparently this is very funny to me in conservative lore there is an uh, there's a uh, sort of a debate that's gone down in history uh, between uh, levin and alan dershowitz about bill clinton and monica Lewinsky, and that's where Levin sort of became this guy known by Hannity as the one, which is a nickname I had never heard of before doing my research last night, but apparently people call him the great one. Um, and, and the other funny thing is he, uh, he basically got this radio gig from that. He was replacing Hannity for 14 months unpaid, um, which is a funny little thing to be able to do um, because he just loved posting that much. And again, he's a right wing hack, but he was mm. kicking Michael Savage's ass in the ratings. So, ah, <laughs> so ah. he became, and if you notice, there's like, they, they, they'll take shots at each other through the, um, through, uh, through the media during the Trump, uh, like the never Trump uh, scenario here. But I just want to play a few sort of um, origin moments. Savage from- is Reagan's son, right? I didn't know that. No, Wait, I didn't. isn't he? Isn't he the? Isn't he the son by the? No, if I get the wrong guy, no, that's Michael Reagan. I'm sorry. I'm bad with take Reagan. Laura. I take it back. I, I sort of like. I've read the '80s is a history I haven't done a whole lot of reading in because I like I was born in the last part of it, and I'm like, I don't know. I just, it no, no, I, I, I'm pretty sure I got the wrong. I got the wrong Michael there. I apologize. Oh no worries. To who I don't. I'm apologizing to you for cutting in. Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, we do want to get to this important biography of uh, Mark Levine, so I'm going to continue here with. Uh, I believe he goes by Levin. Levin. Okay. Yeah. Thank okay, you and that. he must be denying his his Jewish heritage. I think. <laughs> 
Here he goes. Uh, this is this is him in the height of you know Breitbart and um, James O'Keefe doing their hit job on Acorn, which the Democrats mm, uh, shamefully mm-hmm. uh, folded on. Look at Timba on Toast's um, James O'Keefe documentary to, for more on that. But here's him. You can see how he's trying to crowbar himself into this moment. And I don't. I haven't been able to find verification that he did this when he was at Reagan's, um, uh, working under Reagan. When I was 22 years old, I'd already graduated from law school. I was working for Texas Instruments Legal Department in Richardson, Texas. But I campaigned for Reagan in 76 and 80, and I very much wanted to work in his administration. So to shorten the story a little bit, I came to Washington at the very beginning of the Reagan administration. And I worked for the director of an agency called the Action Agency. And the director was Tom Pawkin, a dear friend. I was only 22 years old. And one of my responsibilities when I first got there, because he he hadn't been confirmed yet, was to take a measure of the place. There were only a handful of us there. And I was among the first. So I started to look around. It was kind of a dungy office building, and yet it was right off Lafayette Square, one block from the White House. Now, the Action Agency was an umbrella agency that included such programs as the VISTA program, which many of you have heard of. At the time, it also included the Peace Corps, as well as a number of others. And it had grant-making power and contract-making power, and it received, you know, a hundred, hundred fifty, three hundred million in its heyday. Most of the money would go through action into these other entities and out to communities. Seems harmless enough. Action was said to be the, the nation's volunteer organization for fighting poverty, among other things. And yet when I got there, I noticed some funny things. Remember, we were the new incoming Reagan team replacing the old outgoing Carter team. Okay, so I'm going to pause it there. Um, it's a, I would notice that the action agency was set up under the Nixon administration before you uh, take uh, Levin's uh, insinuations that it's a Marxist plot too seriously. And I want to jump a little bit ahead here to him. Uh... So this is his thing. Is he He does this sort of like I'm a credible guy thing. And then he gets into a shrieking um, mode that uh, I'll uh, share. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he has. A, I was very surprised by his very calm and almost reflective. <laughs> well, I, if I were to let it go a little bit further, it would have done what he does in this clip here. Okay. They secrete themselves into these agencies. They pervert their missions. They take your money. And they fund these radical enterprises. That's going on right now. I guarantee you what's going on at the EPA, at the Interior Department, with the Enviro nut jobs. I'm sure it's going on with all these phony volunteer agencies where money's being pushed through Acre. Why do you think the President of the United States would fight so damn hard to make sure four, five, six billion dollars would be set aside for these groups? These are his brown shirts. I've said it before. I know. I've seen them. I've dealt with them. I have fought with them. I know who they are. 
No other host can get behind a microphone and tell you this. I know who they are. They are the 1960s new left radicals. Acorn's just that tiny little piece. They're like cockroaches. They set up all these groups, political action committees, charitable organizations, and when you catch up with one, they create another. They're constantly on the move. And Obama knows all about them because he helped to create them. And he used to represent Acorn and others. He knows exactly what he's doing. This is why they pushed billions of dollars in the stimulus for these groups. Because they really do get a big bang for the buck. As they organize our communities against us. The fact that Vista is alive and growing and being celebrated at the White House is a sign of success. They said back in 1982. They were also linked to the Institute for Policy Studies, which, if you know, is a hard-left pseudo-think tank. And it goes on and on and on, and these are the organizations. I encourage you to read this. We will link to this on MarkLevinShow.com. Much of the information in this report is information that I and others I worked with at the time uncovered. When I went through the contracts, and I went through the grants, and I went through the boxes, and I went through the files, and I said... My God, we're funding a counter-revolution. Jesus Christ. And we're all supposed to pretend that, oh, what a historic moment. Yeah. Okay. So, that, I think there's a lot of... Is that, what year is that? Can you tell me? That's about 2009. That? Um, yeah. okay. So, yeah, that's during the Acorn stuff. And just the way he's like, no other host can tell you this. Well... First of all, why didn't you tell us this before that? Like, I couldn't find any sort of like controversy in the '80s that he had uncovered anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, the, yeah, the need to be—I'm the one. It's very Trump-like, actually. That I'm the one host that you can get um, to know this stuff. But what's so it's funny? Medical. What's so funny about these guys? Um, him and just like all the right wingers who make all these big allegations about NGOs and. And, and and organizations like that is that the way that like the actual left deals with the, a lot of those organizations um, is there's it's a lot of criticism right is that like one of the bigger problems of like the left in this country 70s onward had been this retreat um, to you know to doing NGO work which wasn't you know moving the dial or moving the ball forward at all yeah. right so rather than it being this extremely successful movement right that is like infiltrating the government and changing things right like the actual left to say like no this has actually like been a really big waste of <laughs> waste of time um, and so it's funny to hear him being like this is the real threat to you know to conservative right wing American politics I, I the, the rhetoric I actually found scary yeah to refer to uh, the reference to cockroaches. Oh yeah. I mean, seriously speaking, that, that that's, that's just Nazi talk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, he's just a hysterical freak, a McCarthyite freak. I think the way he's, and, and this is the pattern he's doing now with this whole CRT stuff. I were not just him, obviously it's not a Mark Levin. Um, one thing I do want to note though, is he had a bit of a moment in the Trump campaign where he lost his way a little bit. Uh, he was a big Ted Cruz supporter. Um, and I do want to include this for any like Trumpers who might have come stumbled across this video and joined us for this long. Uh, the first is um, where he almost first drew the line uh, against Donald Trump. Um, and I, I, this was part of the Republican primary that I enjoyed. Um, and, and even at the time I knew that you might uh, look back on your enjoyment a little bit differently if Trump ends up pulling this out and that's what happened. Yeah. 
Um, but here is uh, uh, Levin talking about his, his first sort of never Trump moment. If Donald Trump continues to attack Ben Carson the way he's attacking Ben Carson, I have to affirmatively oppose him. I like the man very much, but the absolute reckless personal assaults on Ben Carson, who is one of the most decent men you could possibly know, and I only know him from the public airwaves, but a truly accomplished man is simply unacceptable to me. It's unacceptable to me. I've never heard this kind of slurring of, uh, of a man of great integrity. Now, of course, that didn't last very long. Um, but I do want to put another part of this fight, uh, which blew up even more a few weeks later, um, which explains a little bit why Mark Levin might sell 700,000 books and be on the top of uh, the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Uh, 700,000. That's, a, you know, according to, um, I, I guess, the New York Times. Is this American Marxism book way up on, on the... That's what, yeah, that's what they're saying. It's top of the charts now. Um, here is uh, well. <laughs> what Roger Stone has to say about uh, Mark Levine and how he sells books. Oh, second. So we're going from the absurd to the disgusting here. Yeah. Oops. Oh, one second. The Senate cons- Damn it. It's too big. Years ago, and by the way, very successful. They supported Cruz, and uh, I don't remember everybody they supported. And this is a group, the Senate Conservative Fund. This is a group set up by Jim Dement, mm-hmm. set up to support conservatives against the establishment, against Mitch McConnell. And a couple of years ago, the cons- and, and by the way, very successful. They supported Cruz, and uh, I don't remember everybody they supported, but very effective. And they back Cruz for the Senate. I back Cruz for the Senate, too. I think before them, but I don't know who they backed and what they did. And so, a couple of years ago, they contact not just my publisher, I think other publishers. They say this Liberty and Tyranny book, Levin's top book. We would like to buy old copies of that book and use them to promote membership. So they did. I wasn't involved in it, but they did. I had no control over it, but they did. That's perfectly legitimate. It's done by a lot of groups and with a lot of authors. And again, I'm not even involved in it. But the book was four or five years old at that point. Now, I think that admission is enough for me to suggest that maybe it's not just going on with old books. um, And it's probably going on with an awful lot of authors. I mean, we know that the right wing does this with book sales. Um, The Ayn Ayn Rand, uh, notoriously, I feel like Milton Friedman or some libertarian society um, was publishing those and just giving them away to libraries and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want us to freak out about his attack on American Marxism. We are American Marxists. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, before we get to his clip on that, like, I do want to point out that I think this guy is, like Harvey said, the danger is, I think, clear that this, the right wing is just in a constant fever pitch of, wanting to do some sort of red scare and mm-hmm. CRT is just like, I mean, we saw the damage that the Solinsky acorn stuff did in the previous administration. 
sorry, should I? I would... If you have something, no, you're ready. I've got I've got another clip here that can bring us into the American Marxism one because I think Bill O'Reilly has some of the concerns that I would about what um, Eleven is. Talking <laughs> Bill O'Reilly, about. that's a name I haven't heard in a long Apparently, time. I was going to say, right? But you know, the honest thing, I think I heard the name three times in the last three days before I otherwise hadn't heard his name in probably years. He, he's still alive and still broadcasting, and uh, he's got some good questions here. As you know, Mark Levin has a big bestseller on Marxism. We're going to have him on a program tomorrow. But rather than go through the book, which he has done a million times, uh, I want to get him to comment on why Disney is woke and why Disney plays into the far left and why Coca-Cola does and why the airlines do and why uh, Comcast does. I, I want to get the why behind all this because Levin has tied it in in his book to a push for Marxism. Does the Disney board of directors know that? Do you think? That's where I'm going with this interview. So it could be a totally different interview than I think Mr. Levin has done. If he, maybe he did it, but I didn't hear it. Because I'm really interested in this. I wrote a message of the day, I hope you read on BillOReilly.com, about these woke corporations and how insane they are, but I don't know why. I mean, obviously, if this country ever went socialist Marxist, the corporations are the first ones going to get hammered. You're going to see that with the Biden tax increases. So they want to get hammered? Is that what they want to do? Lose money? Lose consumers? It doesn't stack to me as a logical thinker. But <laughs> I know, I know somebody who wants to have so, like, No, Bill O'Reilly, like, he, like, he finally like, understood his own grift for a second. He's like, wait a second, this doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's interesting, but just to the side. He just wasn't that, loaded for a moment. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, we could, it is funny, but it's also fascinating how corporations are, are able to literally embrace identity politics so readily. I mean, that's, that's true. Mm -hmm. But it's also quite interesting that what I've, I've been asking myself this, I asked myself this because of the Josh Hawley phenomenon. And, and I can tell you, I'm most worried about Hawley as the future Republican candidate for president. And, and that's because they're, they're so ready to attack big business right now, the right. This is part. This is a whole new phase of, if you like, uh, a new phase of that right-wing populism, mm -hmm. as opposed to be the government being the problem. They're now targeting big corporations, capital mm -hmm. operations, and uh, I mean, I think it's, I think it's a fascinating thing what he, what he, what he's doing just there, because it was funny. To, I didn't expect him to go there. I figured, mm -hmm. you know, the others, the younger ones will go there. I just got a book from a publisher. I don't know if it was one of the mainstream publishers or Rignary, the right-wing publisher as a possible book to review. Mm -hmm. Actually, I, I thought I was going to be doing some reviews for Jacobin and it, the title is like woke capital, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you know, th th it is amazing how the right is prepared to go after capital right now as a way of reaching in quotes, the white working class and middle class. Yeah, Kaepernick, mm. I think, really was a uh, watershed in that. They they decided, like, we're going to have to bash Nike a little bit because our people want us to. But, yeah. you know, you also have to, like, pull apart the difference between the, like, the 
the right wing like media machine and like right wingers in power, Republicans in power, right? Absolutely. And I, and which I know everybody you know here knows, but it's just like so much of their their story, especially when it does come to like getting support from working people, is this story it's like you know that like that asshole boss that you have, or like that feeling of alienation that you have, the exploitation that you have. They try to tap into that, um, but again they never make the conclusion that it's like, yeah, well, this is because this entire system operates in the service of, of capital and profit and for profit's sake alone and throws you to the wolves. It's because, oh, the wrong people are in power and they have this crazy left-wing social agenda to like, you know, emasculate you and turn your truck into a Prius, right? Um, I mean, that's just so much of the, uh, of, of, of what they, what they try to tap into because I don't know, like th- these guys are really interesting to me just as somebody who, d- you know, did grow up in the South, did grow up poor. You know, you see that kind of split. Uh, I mean, most people don't vote in the first place. And the ones who pay attention, um, you know, a lot of people vote d- Democrat. Um, but then the people who were Republicans, it was all this kind of stuff, right? You could talk to them about how the system's rigged against them. You know, the man's holding them down. Um, but, you know, um, but, you know, still like, George Bush is a great guy. Donald Trump is a great guy, all this kind of stuff. Um, And it's because they really do sell. They do this kind of like last minute flip of like, okay, you're mad. You're really fucking mad about all this shit. Um, And I'm going to like describe your life to you. And then I'm going to say, well, it's all in the service of, you know, making woke woke, uh, Pepsi commercials or something like that. Right. Which is what their play is. And what's frustrating to me about it is that. I really think that if you had a stronger left in this country, you could immediately evaporate any kind of appeal to, to working people to this kind of garbage, right? Because it only stands on its two feet when you have the opposition Democratic Party being like, well, I love the commercials and the commercials are the best thing that's ever happened. And also like, oh yeah, technicality, you're not getting a $2,000 check, you're getting a, you know, whatever, right? Um, well, the, the, the Democrats sometimes act out a commercial for us when, as when they... <laughs> Remember when, uh, was it Pelosi and Schumer and any number of Democrats donned that sort of African garb and then yeah. taken, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's just, like, it's just interesting for me to, to see, like, what these guys are up to, I guess. I mean, it's like, I, I think of it in this, the thing with, so I read, um, like, the first five chapters of American Marxism, and it's, Mark Levin is not a historian. Um, he's not... <laughs> What he's doing is like like the Franklin School sort of example shows is he's doing bastardizations of of political thinkers throughout history to give mm. his work like a patina of a sort of learnedness that will impress the readers that will never actually follow up on the original source material of these writers, and then the entire and then the rest of it is. Um, pathologizing people like leftists basically so yeah. why do they want to do this it's because they need meaning or they need have a cat or some shit like that right and it's like no context of the recession or the, the only, <laughs> only time like a like capitalism comes up it's like uh, what we had to do for the start of the pandemic and like that's sort of like sort of playing on like um anti-lock Playing to anti-lockdown sentiment, yeah. but no, in the context of like you know stagnant wages or anything like that. It's it's just a simple two-step. That's just a simple repackaging of what this guy's been doing for years. It's just yeah. the sort of conspiratorial. Um, let me draw connections to proper nouns that you will never look into the essence of. 
Um, I have, and even well, if you I, did, like they wouldn't interact with your reality, right? In the way that I'm presenting it to you, like critical race theory, for example. I mean, that is like you know, I, like that's an actual discipline, obviously. But what that what, when the right wing starts talking about, it, it's like it's it, it's not even existent. Do you know what I mean? Whatever they're talking about, yeah. like doesn't exist as like a actual field. It just is a stand-in for whatever thing that you don't like that's happened to you recently. Exactly. Um, it sells, but it does sell. No, it's crazy. I mean, you yeah. know, Matt and I, because we do this, we're in the back end of, of YouTube, right? We can see like what they're trying to push and what's hot and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's CRT and it's like liberals getting owned, right? Like people love that. Like those are two things that people just love. Right. Uh, and they've loved that for a long time. Um, well, we should, we should see some of this text before. Uh, oh yeah. Let me just play one more clip. Cause this okay. is from the interview uh, with Levin and O'Reilly and we can go into Levin explicates what he means by American Marxism. Guys, he didn't write a book called Marxism. He's talking about American Marxism. The left goes to shareholder meetings. They show up by the hundreds. They make demands. Uh, They they conduct boycotts and and they try to get pension funds to divest. We don't do anything except complain about it and talk about it. And that's one of the points of my book. It's time that we become a little bit more engaged. We don't have to change our lives the way they do. They're 24-7 at this. But how about we spend a few minutes every day or an hour every week uh, doing what we need to do to push back. And we need to begin boycotting. We need to begin sanctioning. We need to be- begin divesting. All right, let's get to that. Uh, we need to we'll get to that in a minute. But I <laughs> yeah. still want to I, I pick up this theme. So Disney, you don't get more American than Disney, all right? The Disney Corporation is full woke. Would you agree with that? They're 100% oh, yeah. in. Okay. Now, I don't know whether Bob Iger, a billionaire, runs Disney is I don't think he's a Marxist or a socialist, um, but what he does is enable this kind of fascism, particularly on speech, to take root. That's what he does. And I'll give you an example. I think you may know this. In Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and in Disneyland in Anaheim, California, the public address people can no longer say the words, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. They're gone. That's fascism. Okay? Uh, they're ordered. No, by that's their- Marxism. Well, you link it into Marxism. That's okay. I'll it in a minute. All right. But I don't think Iger and the board of Disney would cop to being Marxists. I don't think well, they I want to explain that. Okay. It's not that they cop to being Marxist. I didn't call the book Marxism. I called it American Marxism. It's an Americanized form of Marxism. And it's for this reason. They have adapted the fundamentals, the oppressed versus the oppressor, the victim versus the victimized. Uh, they reject so many of our founding principles, whether they're billionaires, whatever they're doing and so forth is, is beside the point. They're not Marxists in the old Soviet way. They're not Marxists. They're not Maoists. They're not Leninists. But they but they embrace the idea uh, that the culture is rotten because they promote it. If they didn't promote it. Uh, then it wouldn't matter what all these Marxist movements are doing. So, yeah. Can I ask you both? I mean, Matt, you know, you know, Harvey, obviously expert in history, Matt with literature, this kind of idea that um, oppressed versus oppressor as a conception is some like unique Marxist like coinage, right? It's just absolutely absurd. Am I right? I mean, read any, you know, any kind of myth, right? That's like key to it. The founding documents of this country, like, um, you know, they're, they're very much about the idea that the United States is being, or, you know, the Americas are being oppressed by the king. It's just like a weird kind of thing to say, like, anytime anybody uses that kind of language, it's immediately Marxist. 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I mean that's a problem. Right, I like the way in one sentence O'Reilly got in not only Marxism and maybe socialism, but fascism too. Right, that's fascism. No, that's Marxism. <laughs> and then it's like, but it's not Marxism. It's American Marxism. I mean, yeah, the guy's just a charlatan, and his like his his advantage is he's so pissed that like you assume he knows what he's talking about. Like if someone yeah. comes in with that kind of energy, you don't say, oh, wait a second. Did somebody really key your car? Like you assume like, oh, somebody fucking keyed your car because you wouldn't be shouting at me um, if <laughs> about it if you were like mistook your car for a different one in the parking lot. Um, yeah, I guess we have a few quotes if we can get to us. Uh, just so if anybody wants our full review of this book, I mean, uh, here's one, uh, David. Uh, I'm very interested in the quotes. So... Um, of course, capitalism is a spontaneous form of commerce arising from individuals voluntarily and en- voluntarily entering into economic relationships. It is not a planned economic system imposed by people by a, on people by a government or a regime. So that is a that of course is um, I think objectionable. It, right? It's extreme. I mean, just the the basic history of how capitalism came to be the dominant form. It's objectionable, right? I mean, the state plays a huge role in implementing property laws, um, you know, contracts, and all of that in, in contemporary times. You know, a, a, one of my favorite stories about Marx is um, one of like his early days when he starts to become a socialist. I can't, I should have prepared it, but I can't remember the magazine he was writing for. It was right after he had finished his PhD. Right. And it's right as like Germany is really starting to move from, you know, a a more feudal system where like people in communities had rights to the forest and things like that to a full on capital system. Um, And the town that he was in, in Germany, um, there was a really cold winter and hundreds of of peasants and farmers uh, died. Um, and it wasn't for lack of firewood in the forest, but because the forest had become privatized and to get access to it, you had to pay um, versus it being something that just belonged, you know, you had a right to go and, and get firewood. Right. And he saw this as a cr- huge um, world historic injustice against these people that you actually had the physical, um, you know, it was needed in the physical world to make sure that people didn't die and was being denied to them to impose a kind of property relationship, right? So anyway, yeah, like that's just such an absurd yeah, was, way to categorize. That was in Silesia, right? Sorry? Silesia, this was... Uh, Potentially, yeah. I wouldn't know off the top of my head. Yeah, and this is, and they shut, am I not mistaken? He was editing it, right? And they did shut yes. the paper down, which is what leads him to move to the Netherlands. Is it Holland first? I mean, Mark's moved Belgium? around so much. I'd have to, I'd have to double check the so trajectory. This is a very interesting moment. You're right. No, in fact, it's a really significant moment for Mark. Sorry. I'm, I'm now more into Marx than I am thinking about American Marxism. Like <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, I think that it's the same topic, Harvey. I mean, here's, here's a little bit more. Um, indeed, as Marxism has borne various iterations of itself with, so here's, he's kind of going back on um, where O'Reilly was pushing him. Um, with its advocates seeking to overturn one or another aspect of cultural or societal life, with their constant exploitation of societal imperfections and individual dissatisfaction. Again, that individual dissatisfaction is what he really, mm-hmm. like, why do people go into the streets? It's because they don't have meaning in their life. It's not because they're f- hungry and sick of their job. Um, and the Marxist archetype of class struggle theory of the oppressor and the oppressed, bourgeois versus proletariat, he puts in in. Uh, parentheses marxism's tentacles have reached deeply into american society and it's ubiquity i mean i wish and it's ubiquity has led to a kind of acquiescence or passive embrace from corporate boardrooms 
and professional sports, Colin Kaepernick, mm. um, to most newsrooms and beyond, or even openly celebrated, albeit under different nomenclatures. So that's a big word he used. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a theory. I mean, how many uh, periods are in that 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 section? Right? It's the, it's. I mean, it's it's extremely convoluted. It's um, again, as I was saying earlier, it's like this idea. I love when right wingers like they use words like bourgeoisie yes. or means of product or terms like means of production to like make it seem like oh they know what they're talking about when yeah. very hey, clearly. I got, I got- I got a kick out of the fact he used the word exploitation, you know, <laughs> that, is, that is true. Cause that usually is, is, is missing. Um, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, the, this is one of those things where it's like to t- you can't even uh, grasp it to like criticize it. Right. Because he's just basically saying Marxism is both like this very material thing, class conflict. Um, but then also this like ethereal thing that's like, Oh, it's creeped into the boardrooms of the United States and professional sports. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's not really any kind of understanding about Marxism, except for what he means by American Marxism, which again, is just a boogeyman for all of the things that, that you don't like in contemporary American society. Yeah. That like that, Basically, I mean, we've said this um, uh, with the Andrew Hartman discussion on CRT, but mm. like the problem they have with CRT and Marxism is not the same thing. It's that they um, historicize hierarchies that they want to keep naturalized and people not looking into like how those were constructed. I mean, that's what that's that's the key to that capitalism quote. It's just all of a yeah, sudden cap- capitalism. Right. We're gonna have ca- right. We all just decided capitalism. Good job, everybody. Let's move on with you know whatever the next like apples. Or yeah, something. that 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 was the, the the best proof of the. Look, we know he's not a historian, mm-hmm. but but if he can imagine capitalism arising spontaneously out of people's needs to be entrepreneurs, come on. I mean, it is. <laughs> by the way, the the, the most ta- the most insightful thing that, that really we 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 can say is that. They make it very difficult, very difficult to really criticize them mm-hmm. because you, it, because they're so utterly inadequate on history. You could be there all day. They're completely they, they they literally conflate, you know, Marxism with any, as you yeah. just said, with everything they yeah. don't like about what, what's going on in America. It's just like it, 10 years ago, he was saying everything is Solowinsky and now everything's Marxism. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. That's that's simply the type of hack that we're dealing with here. Yeah, well, let's hope soon they start saying it's all the fault of David and Matt. <laughs> yeah, it's all about good. Harvey JK. Um, <laughs> no, David and Matt. <laughs> um, Harvey, uh, before we go uh, to the post. Oh, wait, do, I'm sorry. Do you mind if there's yeah. there's just one of those ones I was hoping to get to just because yeah. it, it does hit at a personal favorite of mine of the way that these right wingers push it. Mm-hmm. It's the last one about um, inequality. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Do you, do you know, see on that one, should I just start from the, obviously the, yeah. Okay. We go. Ob- the one below it is, it's a longer okay, block cool. quote. Um, and yeah, I'm not sure who that is. Like all Marxists, you know, are you familiar with the uh, Marxist? Jean Anyan. Um, you know, she, I'm familiar with her own in like the most passing way, just like a, you know, New York, uh, you know, graduate school. What was it? Um, you know, she was, she was, a, she's like a leftist professor that I guess he's criticizing in this text, but it's not really important as much as what he's about to say about, you know, the truth of, of Marxism being all about equality. Right. 
um, also exploits the exploits the fact of human equality or inequality, which uh, exists for a myriad of reasons, many having nothing to do with economic oppression or dislocation, historic discrimination or injustice, but the nature and consequences of individual conduct, motivation and work work ethic, good uh, luck, good or bad, etc. Moreover, actual equality in the economic context is both practical and impossible. What precisely is meant by economic inequality? To what extent can it be imposed upon a population of unique and diverse individuals? And by what means and methods shall it be imposed? How do we measure when economic inequality has been achieved? And how do we ensure it endures from one generation to the next? It is not economic equality in the eye of the beholder. And what effect will economic equality, whatever it means and however enforced, have on the economic growth opportunity and well-being of the general society. So so I think that, you know, Mark is on to something. These are actually some good questions to ask about the conception of equality. Um, some some uh, questions that Marx himself actually dedicated a lot of time uh, to sort of like dancing around with. And I'm going to go to the, the text in a second of, of, of Marx. But this is one of those things um, that why these guys like Mark um, and, and Jordan Peterson really infuriate me. Right. Uh, one, obviously, they're they're charlatans and they're just trying to sell a, a kind of conception of you know, a pretty insane right-wing conception of reality. But two, I mean, it's just very clear that they haven't even wrestled with these questions in, in the, in the most basic way, right? Because Marxists themselves and Marx himself uh, do have these questions about equality. And there is, and, and a lot of leftists actually fall into this trap too, I think sometimes because you're trying to defend against these right-wing criticisms of Marxism, they paint a picture of what Marxism is saying as, as something different from what is actually said. Right. Um, which is, you know, this kind of idea that's very popular in the U S that Marxism is this idea about making everybody equal. Right. Which is a premise that Marx very, very much uh, rejected. Um, so much so he wrote this entire pamphlet uh, called The Critique of the Gotha Program, criticizing, um, you know, a, a, a program by, by socialists that Marx found to be extremely inadequate. And it's a really great text. Uh, Matt and I did a long form discussion on it uh, back in December, which people should check out. But you should also read it yourself. 45 minutes and you can dispel a lot of these myths. But I wanted to go to this equality thing because Marx, in fact, is upset as at part of the Gotha Program. Um, that calls for, you know, pure quality. And let me pull this up real quick. This is uh, from Critique of the Gotha Program. And Marx here talks very explicitly um, about equality, right? He criticizes the socialists saying that they need to have, you know, full equality. And he says, uh, but one man is, is superior to another physically or mentally and supplies more labor in the same time or can labor for longer and labor to serve as a measure must be defined by its duration or intensity. Otherwise, it ceases to be a standard of measurement. This equal right, he's criticizing people saying that we should have equal right to you know, the proceeds of labor, is an unequal right for unequal labor. It recognizes no class differences between because everyone is only a worker like everyone else, but it's tactically recognizes unequal individual endowment and thus productive capacity as a natural privilege. It th- is therefore a right of inequality in its content like every right. Right by its very nature can, uh, can consist only in the application of an equal standard, but unequal individuals, and they would not be different individuals if they were not unequal. I mean, this is a fundamental truth that, truth that Marx is admitting, um, are measurable only by an equal standard insofar as they are brought under an equal point of view, are taken from one definite side only, for instance, in the present case, are regarded only as workers, and nothing more is seen in them, everything else being ignored. 
Further, one worker is married, another is not. One has more children than another, and so on and so forth. Thus, with an equal performance of labor, and hence an equal in the social consumption fund, one will in fact receive more than one than another. One will be richer than another, and so on. To avoid all these defects, right instead of being equal, would have to be unequal. And I want to just go on to the famous line that people do probably do know, um, where Marx, you know, sort of talks, he talks very briefly about transformative period. Um, and he talks about what the, the model of a communist society um, would be. Um, um, here we go. Only then, so after we go through this transformative period, can the narrow horizon of bourgeois right be crossed in its entirety and society inscribe on its banners from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, right? And we can spend time, you know, arguing about how we feel about that, that quote by Marx or whatever. But the point here is that these kind of questions about natural inequalities amongst people have been addressed. And like, like the key texts here actually say the opposite, that it would actually be immoral to oppose a system of inequality for the very reason that these right-wingers bring up, which is that by our very nature, we are not the same. We have different abilities and all these different factors that go into our life and the reproduction of that life. So again, obviously, you know, it's probably wrong of me to expect better from our right-wing opponents, but boy, an expert you know, you in the front of the time doing the research here if you're going to write a book about Marxism. Well, in, in one paragraph, he can speak this Levin or folks of his ilk about the founders and what they supposedly envisioned, right? Mm. And on the other hand, they could, what he just, not used, David, but what yeah. Levin wrote and, sa- and says is that, uh, is that inequality is like a Marxist thing. But in fact, for all of their faults, failings, and their sins, and we know them, mm-hmm. the founders actually were seriously concerned about inequality, mm-hmm. okay? Which is why they did not want full-scale estates to be able to pass from one generation to another, for example, which is why they did not include, strangely enough, in the Constitution, they did not include the question of property as a condition of service in government. I mean, there's a whole mm-hmm. series. They, they were very concerned about these things. But it's interesting that, again, this is, this is American Marxism somehow, mm-hmm. that, that, right? As if, as if one, it's as if, if one weren't a Marxist, one wouldn't be concerned about inequality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's enough uh, said on American Marxism, probably even more than needed to be said. But uh, uh, Harvey, tell us, uh, you have a book that's being re-released, The British Marxist Historians. Before we go, uh, tell us a little bit about that, because I'm excited yeah, to read that. I'll one. keep it. I'll keep it very brief, because... Because I, I, when when it comes out, and I don't have a date for it yet, so this was a book first published in 1985, mm-hmm. um, transatlantically, and it it was my original claim to fame as, as, a, as a historian, intellectual, and all that, and then um, it came out again, and then at a certain point in '96, I believe it was '95, '96, it came out again with a forward by Eric Hobsbawm, and again I. I Forget if young people are as familiar with Hobsbawm's name as as I am, obviously. And now um, it it was it did not go out of print, but I found out that a publisher laid claim to it that had no right to it, so I demanded that they hand it over. And it's coming out with zero books this coming year. Um, I said I, I mistakenly waited to the last minute to send you the the mock up of the cover. Okay, it's it's all in your email. So next time I come on, it'll be. You know, we can do it. It's going to have a really handsome cover. The one that I sent you, as a, which is the draft 
um, will be edited. But more importantly, the British Marxist historians were a group of English, essentially, but I called them British, English intellectuals uh, born in the early part of the 20th century who came essentially out of sort of um, not what in England would be called nonconformist Protestant households. So to be mm-hmm. a Methodist or s- some version of the once upon a time Puritanism, almost those kinds of things. And, and entered university in the 30s and they were bright, some quite often scholarship kinds of students at university. And they became Marxists in the 1930s, joined the Communist Party. And uh, their names once dealt with in that particular book. I did a second book that included others. Uh, Eric Hobsbawm, okay, who's a uh, best way of explaining Hobsbawm is he, he wrote about every part of the world. He's a world historian, um, lived in, into his mid 90s, um, spoke numerous languages, probably the most famous of the group. There was E.P. Thompson, the author of the probably the most important book of labor and social history in the 20th century entitled The Making of the English Working Class. And I'm not going to recommend to people they go out and buy it and read it because it's 900 pages and I don't want, I don't have the fantasy that, that everyone would do that, but it really did. It really in itself influenced my generation to look at, look at history in a, in a new way so that it, it's called history from the bottom up. But the other thing is, and this is what unites all of them, and I'll mention the rest and then talk specifically about their contribution. Then there was Christopher Hill, who literally rewrote the story of the 17th century in England, which is the revolutionary century. Uh, Rodney Hilton, who was the medievalist, who literally rewrote med- medieval history to the extent that never before had anyone really talked about the Middle Ages as itself subject to class struggles between lords and peasants and all that. The main thing about this group is this. And the original historian that influenced all of them was an economist named Maurice Dobb, who wrote a really classic work entitled Studies in the Development of Capitalism. And it's sort of people had argued about the origins of capitalism for a long time. Marx wrote about it. Weber wrote about it in his own way. Henri Perrin, who was a Belgian historian, it was a classic European question. What these historians were interested in is the, is what is class struggle? Mm-hmm. Okay. And they were utterly bored by the standard Marxist terminology that in some ways owes more to Engels, perhaps, than to Marx or to a whole host of later Marxists, the idea of base and superstructure. And they, in essence, they almost chuck out the base and superstructure because they, they, they understood that social relations of production, which are at the heart of what becomes class struggle, if it's a, a relationship of exploitation, that that you can't understand social relations of exploitation of production as simply an economic relationship. Okay. Mm -hmm. Even the term political economy, which extends the question might not be adequate because to quote my comrade, David law is part of the social relations of production. Okay. Mm -hmm. You can't, there would be no capitalism if there wasn't law. Okay. Mm -hmm. And similarly in the Middle Ages. So the point is they tell a, sto- a new story of British history, which is a story of how class struggle shapes and makes not always vic- by no means is it a story always of victories. But the point is that class struggle by peasants, by workers who are engaged themselves in class struggle um, has shaped British history. And, and if that sounds what's so important about that is, Go back and look at any histories written before the 1960s. Look at textbooks and other things. Okay, to what extent we could say that th- this is 
Marx himself, it, I can't tell you, but I do believe that if you go to the Communist Manifesto mm. and you start there, you will see the degree to which they're asking the questions that Marx was asking. Now, one, one other thing I want to point out, and that is that, that they remained in the Communist Party. They, they fought in World War II, each in their respective ways. They came back from the war and they created the Communist Party Historians Group which also became, in essence, the, the, the site out of which a famous journal, Past and Present, emerges. In 1956, with the Soviet invasion of Hungary, almost all of them depart the Communist Party, but they all remained socialists. Okay, Habsbaum did not leave the party, never left the party. He, used to, he said, ultimately, the party kind of left him because it sort of collapsed. Mm-hmm. And, and, I could, and when we talk again, I, we can talk about Hobsbawm in those terms. But it, what's really fascinating about it is that here's this group of five or 10, depending on how you counted. There were others equally important, but I went to the core of the group, is that they really not only wrote a new kind of history, they actually, I believe, change our understanding hmm. of how history is made and similarly, I think, and I know Ben wants to argue about this with me, and I don't, I don't want to argue <laughs> this stuff. This, this is the stuff I did in the 80s, okay? But it, it is the case <laughs> that I, I came to see Marx in a far richer way as a consequence of these histories that were influenced by Marx's ideas, hmm. okay? Fair so I wrote about them. I haven't told yeah. the story of how I came to do that, but that's pretty much it. And I, I probably should have encapsulated it in two sentences to say, that I wrote about them and then I became friends with them. And in the new edition, in the forward, the, the new forward that I, not forward, the new preface that I wrote, I talk about briefly some ad, little adventures I had with each of them, where you really could see the degree to which, even as, even in the present day, when they looked at human experience, they understood the way in which class shapes and struggle shapes our experience. So, and even now when people, don't even realize that I was a more blatant Marxist, to put it that way, in the past. I, I still, it, I don't see things differently, okay? I just have a different, a different approach to political discourse in hopes of, of making some kind of contribution to turning this into a social democratic America. Yeah, well, I mean, we're all really uh, looking forward to the, the re-release. I mean, I know two of those figures, um, Hobsbawm, you know, I read his Age of series and Invention of Tradition, a few others, mm-hmm. I feel like. Um, well, and- given your interest in English lit, I can tell you the one you really want to look at is some of the work of Christopher Hill hmm. in the 17th century. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm and p- by the way, part of the group, there were a number of others who actually were really interested in, in well, for lack of a better way of putting it, literary criticism and and so on. Yeah, I don't know if I've read Christopher Hill. The name sounds familiar. Um, E.P. Thompson was a big influence on Peter Lindbaugh, for instance, too, I know. Oh, well, Peter, I mean, I mean, I've known Peter. Look, I mean, I can tell you how this also connects. So Leo Panich, okay, Ralph Miliband was one of the co-founders of Socialist Register. Mm-hmm. Socialist Register, what happens is you get these folks who left the Communist Party, and in some way, and you get, they are the folks also, well, at least in Thompson's case, they're the founders, Stuart Hall, E.P. Thompson, of New Left Review. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the break with New Left Review when Perry Anderson 
basically t- ends up taking over the magazine, the journal, and Socialist Register, which Leo became the heir mm-hmm. to from Ralph Miliband, um, comes out of that cohort, especially Thompson. I, I don't I don't know if Hobsbawm wrote for them or not, but Thompson did. V.G. Kiernan, another one of the historians whose work I've written a lot about in the past, um, they all wrote for Socialist Register. And, and I would tell people that if they get a chance and they really want to understand the making of modern Marxist thinking, go back and look at the early years of the Socialist Register. My, my piece probably was in the 85, 86 volume, I think, which had wow. to do with the new right and their use and abuse of history. I actually can send you guys the links to it. It's available online. So uh. that'd be great. Uh, and you know what's, what's really unfortunate? Sorry, I'll just say this last thing. So I've known Leo for, I knew Leo, I shouldn't say mm-hmm. I, known, I knew Leo for years, but we only really started having a direct correspondence in these la- in the last few years. Mm. And, and then he died and we never got to meet face to face. Yeah. Yeah. The one I was very, very close to was Ellen Wood. She and I were very, very close friends. Oh, really? Yeah, very, yeah. very close friends. And it's it's really it's it's really fun to be able to talk to you and have that uh, that direct insight into folks. Yeah, I couldn't um, believe that the day we. I was always the youngest of a cohort. I was the youngest in my university, and all of a sudden, I'm the old guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of funny to me. Yeah, it catches it up to up. us all. Yeah, I'm already feeling it. Um, so, uh, folks, we're going to head to the post game. We'll start probably in 15 minutes or so. Um, we got some fun stuff. John Taffer, um, you know, talking about uh, keeping people hungry so they serve capitalists better. Um, we're going to get uh, Harvey's take on Thomas Paine, T. Paine. Um, what else do we have, David? Uh, we're going to find out that. Uh, um, uh, sorry, Jeff Bezos finds out that oh, space right. is actually very, very dark. <laughs> come to find out um, can i just tell everyone that my daughter who lives in brooklyn is an assistant attorney general of the state of new york and she is she is the lawyer in the attorney general's office who is resp- handling and responsible for the amazon case oh wow well that's uh, that's pretty yeah, exciting chris smalls and i got a kick out of it when that happens so uh, <laughs> well well, we'll see all of you on the other side at uh, patreon.com slash left reckoning. See you, folks.